1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Debate, disagreement, different perspectives, different priorities, and even, well, different sets of facts make persuading other people in your organization extremely tough. Now, if I add to that, in most cases, the outcome matters a great deal to you and to all the other parties. And what that means, in my experience, is emotions run high. And anyone who says, take the emotions out, is kidding you, you can't. They're part of the package. So what we want to focus on today is what can you do to actually win an argument? And I don't mean beat down your opponent. I mean, how can you persuade someone else to have a different point of view? And to do this, we're going to hear some tips from a master world champion debater. So my guest today is Bo So. He's a two-time world champion debater and a former coach, of the Australian National Debating Team and the Harvard College Debating Union. So one of the most recognized figures in the global debate community, he's won both the World Schools Debating Championship and the World University Debating Championship. He's written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, CNN, and a host of other publications. He's worked as a national reporter for the Australian Financial Review. He's been a regular panelist on the Primetime Australian Debate Program the drum. He graduated from Harvard, received a master's degree in public policy from Tsinghua University, and he's currently in the law school at Harvard Law School. Not only that, he has a fabulous new book that I am really highly fond of. So, Bo, welcome to the show.
2: That's very kind. Thanks so much, Wanda, and greetings to your listeners.
1: Thank you for being here. Now, I know this may sound a little crazy to talk to a professional (laughs) debater. But as I read your book, it's really clear, crystal clear to me, as it is to host of other people, that the ideas of debate and rhetoric are really powerful for business leaders. Now, that's my view. I want to ask you why. Why do you choose to write about debate tactics? Why does this matter to you?
2: Um, it's a wonderful question and nothing crazier than being a professional debater. So, <laughs> so I think we're on the same level there. Um it was important to me for two reasons. The first is the fact that I'm talking to you at all, the fact that I'm speaking in public about my opinions at all, um, that's a credit to debate and its capacity to raise people's voice and to help them find the steel that that it takes sometimes to be able to say I and then follow it with um, an opinion, right? right. And um, I came to, I moved to Australia when I was a kid as an immigrant without speaking the language. And for me, it was the promise of debate that when one person speaks <clears throat> that no one else does, that you could raise your voice, not only in the hum of agreement, but in the drama of disagreement and be heard. That was really important to me. So um you know, a, a voice is a big gift and, and I, I owe a lot to the activity for that. The second reason, one I think is actually, um, you know, especially when I was reporting, I saw it all around me. I saw it in the political realm that disagreement was not only driving us apart, it was unraveling the fabric that <clears throat> holds our communities together. I heard it from business leaders um, who often talk about internal disagreements within their teams, but also their organizations. And um, it comes about in part due to a wonderful thing, which is we're allowing more people to speak than ever before. We have these diverse workplaces where um, there's generational differences and different styles of of responding to authority and and discussing ideas. And those are all wonderful things, but it also creates a lot of tension that has to be resolved. And so, Um, It was in the hope and the search for better ways to disagree, right, of suggesting that the opposite of bad disagreement need not be agreement, but that it can be good disagreement. It was in the search for that that I turned back to debate.
1: Great. That makes a bunch of sense to me. And I think I'm correct. Correct me if I'm incorrect about this. But some of what we do with debate was actually honed in the Greek community in the notion of how do we create a civil society, a democratic society, and actually have debate about some of the substantive issues. Am I, is my memory right there?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for um, for bringing that up. I mean, and it's such an important point because the history of debate goes back to, um, as you say, to ancient Greece, to antiquity, and to notions about what it means to train someone to be a citizen. And key to that notion of citizenship was that not only that people would be able to express themselves um, in a public space, but more importantly, that they would be able to listen to what someone else has to say and to respond, and to make that disagreement be something that's additive to their relationship and to the community as a whole. So you're, you're quite right, that's where it starts, and the, um, the place where the story goes next Um, is it it really grows up with the emergence of parliamentary democracy, right? And um, the form of debate that I did is called parliamentary debate, and it's often associated with the debates in the House um, in Britain. But my favourite part of that story is that it doesn't come out necessarily from um, those political debates themselves, but rather... That while the House of Commons was sitting in Britain, there were coffee houses and pubs where ordinary citizens would um, get together, copy the agenda and the procedures of parliament and take the project of governance into their own hands by um, competing, laughing. And as you say um, in your introduction, um, it wasn't this cold, rational Thing. it There were real stakes. Mm-hmm. There was ego. There were all of these things. And they found ways to manage that. And I feel really proud to be a part of that tradition.
1: Yeah, it's a great tradition. Um, you can see why it could be so important for a democracy to have skills in debate. And I'm certain that there are people listening to this who say, oh, my gosh, we've gotten so far away from it. Now yeah. my our challenge for today is not to solve our democratic problems around the world. <laughs> not today is to help leaders figure out how to do a better job with this inside their own organizations. Now you said something very interesting in as an immigrant coming to Australia not speaking the language that the debate society allowed you to be able to speak without interruption. Mm. Raise your voice if it was appropriate to disagree and to be heard. And I have a feeling there are an awful lot of people who say, I would like those four. So I I want to just honor that part of the story. But I want to follow it with the following. A bunch of people believe that if you're not a natural extrovert, then you're probably not going to be very good at giving speeches or being persuasive or debating or getting your point across. And so they give up if they're not a natural extrovert. What's your response to that?
2: It's it's such a real concern, right? And 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 I'm I've been deba- I've been in the debate world fifteen years. I've written a book about it, and still I find myself wrestling with that aversive instinct, right? So um, i will say two things about that. The first is, as you mentioned, um, the the part of the magic of debate is, and I think this is an actionable step is that in debate, every disagreement begins with some agreement. And that's agreement about how we're going to carry out the discussion. And that is, we're roughly going to give each other equal time, right? We're going to mm-hmm. not interrupt when the other person is speaking, but we're going to take turns. So I'm going to get a go, you're going to get a go, but I'm going to be able to come back. So I don't have to interrupt. I'll be able to respond later. right? right? So... Yes. Um, agreement about how we're going to have the disagreement, but also importantly, agreement about what we're disagreeing about. And um, for me, it was really important that if I was getting into a discussion about some sports game or some class project, it wasn't also going to be, you know, where are you from? Why do you speak the language in a funny way? So you don't want it to kind of balloon. And in a in a less personal context, in a business context, um when you're having these meetings about a, a part of a proposal or a decision that you need to make, you don't want it then to become a discussion of the whole strategy, right? Or or, or this entire vertical in the business, um, because then everything is kind of up for grabs. And part of the um, prescription in debate is to say, name what the disagreement is. And in doing that, take a lot of the other stuff off the table. The table. That's That's the first thing that I'll say. The second is um and, and I think we can come back to it and 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 develop it because it's a it's something to unpack, but I think one thing that helps especially introverted people um uh and this actually this comes up often um in situations where ideas about disagreement disagreeableness um of you know, raising rebuttal. These are also um, often gendered and racialized ideas, right? So you you can you can imagine um, someone being told they're being shrill or they're mm-hmm. being angry when they're um, raising an objection, right? And so it's it's very hard to place on any one individual um, the burden of changing all that, but especially in positions of leadership you want to be setting a tone in the organization that says we welcome these kinds of disputes and, and for people who are not in positions of power to advocate for that kind of culture where, and I think this is the important point in debate. Sometimes you argue a position that you don't believe, right. Just to raise the point and to kick the tires and say to play devil's advocate for a second, what about this idea? And so I think maybe one thing that helps, um, people like me in that, who are a little shy, introverted by nature, is to insert a little bit of a gap between the ego and the self and the positions they argue for at any given time. Um, And I think uh, debate does that.
1: So, all right. I believe that extroverts are going to struggle to get their thoughts coherent and clear and structured because they just kind of tend to spit it all out. And therefore, they're not as coherent as they could be. And I believe introverts are always going to struggle with being a little nervous Mm. of speaking out and needing time to prep. And what I, what I think is both have a set of advantages and disadvantages, and it's a matter of leaning into what you need to do to prepare yourself, to get ready, to practice, whatever it is. It's not that you can or can't do it. I said you have that's, some advantages, some disadvantages.
2: That's very, very nice. Yeah. The
1: second thing that I think that you're reminding me, sort of if I think about my own work and leading particularly top teams into a discussion about a contentious topic. Um, I often use a structure that forces people to speak in a particular order without interruption and a whole bunch of things. But what you're saying me, to me about the debate world is that we're creating a known structure, mm-hmm. a known set of rules, and we're going to follow those rules. So you have time to speak, you have time for rebuttal, you have, you know, there's a structure to it. And I think we underestimate in the corporate world how important structure is to being able to foster the contentious
2: points of view. I like that so much. I mean, um, and, and structure is in some ways where the advantages and disadvantages of introverts and extroverts that you were saying, it's where it meets. And it's where it finds a quite a happy resting place. So for extroverts who are kind of bubbling with energy and with thoughts and they're kind of ready to get it out the door, um, their ideas out the door, structure gives you something to funnel it through, Mm -hmm. right? So debate, importantly, doesn't take away the emotions. It's not a practice that says, Civil dialogue requires us just sitting around in a circle and 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 listening and being saintly. It says there's room for competition, there's room for ego, there's room for something being at stakes because you're exposing yourself in this way, putting yourself out there. But channel it, channel it, put it through, put it put it through a structure, organize it. Think of the other person and not just of what you want to say. So I think that helps with, on that side. And then on the introvert side. Um, the structure part is helpful because it gives you something to fall back on, right? It gives you a a way into it. Um, And for me, it was very important, um, and, and, and I think we'll get to it in the discussion, there are all these structures for how do you come up with an argument? How do you even know what the argument is about? And it was really helpful for me that I could almost do it as a series of exercises as opposed to saying, what does my organic heart right. kind of believe right. about right. this right. and let it let it flow out spontaneously? So I think those two um, comments that you make, um, uh, which I think are important, um, tend to converge in that converge way. Converge in the same way.
1: Yeah, and I do want to get to the structure because I think the structures that are part of the debate world are really an interesting discipline to use I just want to call out one highlight, Amy Edmondson, who writes about, uh, the book is The Fearless Organization, but writes about psychological safety in particular. It's been 30 years of career for her. She says one of the components of psychological safety is that the leader turns and says, what have we been missing? What Mm. are the alternative ideas? And invites that disagreement or dissension at the appropriate moments in time. So wow. it ties also, this whole notion of being more effective with disagreement is really what we're looking for, for innovation, for engagement, for everything.
2: That's such a nice thing. Uh, and, and, and a little counterintuitive, right? So one yep. of the things that I, I think about is, um, one of the things that I um, invite people to do is, before you go up and present your argument, think about the best arguments for the other side. Right, and there's a there's a few of these exercises, but there's a perception that to be certain, it has to be a hundred percent, right? And the more kind of um, extreme you are on a position, the more certain you are of it, the more confident you are, and we've kind of coded those as being the same or interchangeable or or, or moving together. Whereas in fact, in debate. Um, the confidence comes from knowing there are two sides here. And the work of disagreement is in convincing people who may not be inclined to agree with you. And I think it is sort of a counterintuitive idea, but we've all seen the people who kind of peacock and, and you know, um, stick out their chest. And in some ways, um, that unwillingness to tolerate the possibility of being wrong comes from a place of real insecurity, um, a lack of psychological safety, and um, the experience of dealing really and reckoning with the opposite perspective is to gain a different kind of strength.
1: You've mentioned, I like that. That's a, that's a thing to hang on to, that the more insecure you feel, the mm. less willing you are to consider that you might be wrong. So yes. that has that has real significant bearings and that confidence comes from willing to accept that there are two sides, at least two sides on any given issue and to entertain that other one. Now, one of the things that you talk about and to practice in the debate world is empathy. And one of the ways you do that, you've mentioned it already, is that you actually practice doing the counter debate. Yeah. You actually take the opposite side. Tell us about that and why you think that's an important thing to do.
2: Sure. I mean, empathy is just one of these troublesome words, really. Um, and um, and I, again, it comes back to biography for me. When I was a kid and I was surrounded by people from a different cultural background, I didn't speak the language, and I just saw the, this kind of ocean of difference between me and my peers. The instruction I would get most often is be empathetic. I try and see things from their point of view. I'm sure we read To Kill a Mockingbird um, at that age, and um, and that's the instruction. And mm-hmm. and it's interesting because I mean to walk a mile in someone's shoes is just a very practical instruction, but empathy is not. It's a kind of an abstract idea, and so and so I struggled with it. I didn't know what to make of it, and it was one of these things to just nod at and 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 pay respect to, but not. It wasn't a big part of my life. And then, um, in, and then I realized something about debate, which is there was this set of tools or exercises that we use for competitive advantage, to be clear, right? To, for, to get ahead. And right. the tools are, uh, one of them I've mentioned, before you go up in the last five minutes, after you spend all this time preparing your case and being certain in your perspective, write down the four best arguments for the other side or go through the case that you've prepared, the, four, the arguments that you have, look at it through the eyes of someone who vehemently disagrees with you and come up with the best objections that you can poke as many holes in your own case as you can. And the third variant is um, because in debate, there's an adjudicator, a, a, a kind of a member of the public, like a jury, Um, The exercise is, imagine you've lost the disagreement, right, that you're having with the other person, and write down the reason why you lost. And all of that um, reckoning with the possibility that you are wrong, that you're going to lose, that it's your views that need to be accommodated than the other person, I don't think that is quite empathy, because you don't know what the other person is going to say, and there's no substitute for really hearing them out. But at a time when we feel so entrenched in our corners of the world, in our side of the trench line, um, it unsettles things a little bit. And I think it gives room through which something like empathy might be able to emerge.
1: Right. Right, I do a version of that in my coaching practice. So let's imagine that two people are having a heated debate about something, and usually it's not one debate, it's a series of disagreements over a series of time, and they get to the point where they just don't like each other very much. <laughs> and so there's now another challenge coming up with this particular individual. One of the things that I really like to force people to think about is, what's the other person thinking? Why might they be thinking something different than you? What are the facts that they have? What are they worried about? What are their fears? Just to step aside from your own linear view. You never know for sure. As you said, you're speculating. It's a hypothesis, but it certainly broadens then your understanding of the issue, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing that you're saying, take both sides of the argument.
2: It is and um, and there's been a lot of research recently um, about how people ch- often change their mind through interviewing, for example and and questions that um, help them see the point that you're making and you're kind of guiding them along and um, and for me that's quite consonant with debate and disagreement and as is the approach that you're saying, because debate and disagreement is, something you have to work up to. It's in some ways um, something you have to earn, right? Mm -hmm. And the way in which you earn it is through preparation, through understanding the other side. If you don't know, you sometimes ask, Mm -hmm. right? You say, just before we continue the disagreement, um, where's your head at? What is it that you really care about here? And once you have that, then you can say, okay, are you comfortable for us to disagree about this? And it's by getting those preconditions and mutual understanding in place that I think we get the most about, most out of our disagreements. Right.
1: I'd agree with that one. Something we could all apply immediately. All right. I want to shift gears and go to this notion of talking about the structure of a good argument and a good debate. And the reason for doing this is, for everybody listening, I think this structure is exactly what you need to follow when you're trying to do persuasive communication of any form, whether it's to pitch a new idea that you want somebody to fund or accept or do, whether it's to pitch change that you want your organization to adopt, or whether it's to try to put out a dissenting view, or whether it's to persuade a group that you've got the right answer and somebody else has the wrong answer or a less good answer. So I really like it as a form of um, discourse. So you have a couple of steps and your step number one is where is the disagreement? And you talk about three levels. Is it a fact, a judgment or a prescription? Explain why you distinguish those two and what you mean by those three. Excuse me.
2: Yeah. So, um, so I love we're starting here that it starts with naming what the disagreement is about. And as soon as we start doing that, we learn there are different kinds of disagreements. So, Um, The first type is a descriptive disagreement, and that's a disagreement about the facts, right? So if one person believes Paris is the capital of France, if someone believes something else, that's a factual disagreement, right? And the appropriate response to that might be to look it up, um, for harder factual questions, to do some research. um, But it's kind of in the realm of what, what the world is like, what's out there. The second type is a normative disagreement, and that's about the way things should be. So that lying is always immoral. Um, It's not a claim about the world in quite the same way as Paris is the capital of France. It's more about the way things should be. It's a kind of a judgment, um, a, a philosophical position that people have. And then the third one is a prescriptive disagreement, which is a disagreement about what we should do. And um, in this particular case, and uh, it could be where we take vacation. It could be which hire we make, which strategy we roll out at what time. And each of these um, uh, are separate and they call for a different style of disagreement and they welcome different kinds of arguments. But the way in which it gets complicated in real life is that they coexist, right? So when we're making a decision about a hire, there may be a factual disagreement embedded in that where we just don't see eye to eye on what this person has achieved in the past, for example. There may be an evaluative component about whether they're the right skill set or whether it's the right personality. And then there's the ultimate choice of what we're going to do. And at yeah. that point, even if they're not great, if they're the best person out there, we might actually choose to make the higher. So they all relate to one another, but they move separately yeah. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why our disagreements can be unruly.
1: And that's where I think we get the pile on. So we started talking sure. about whether we're going to hire this person. And then we ended up with, you got the last choice last time. And that was a disaster. And we made a mistake <laughs> in this thing here over there five years ago. And I told you, and then we're like, we're debating the universe as that. opposed yeah. to sticking with higher. But I think the fact that these three don't get separated makes it really difficult to get to what the disagreement is about. And I can imagine in a team or in any corporate debate, are we debating about the facts? Okay. Are we debating about what I think should be done, values, principles, rules, regulations, judgments, et cetera, or debating about what we're going to do about it? And I can almost imagine people beginning to pull the argument apart into three different places. Yes. And then, Decide. Do we agree on the facts or not?
2: What do exactly. we do about that? Do we agree on the shoulds or not? And we can do all of them, right? But we want to yeah. do it one at a time. One at uh, a time. We want to do it in a sequence.
1: Right. Okay. I like that. So where's the disagreement? You also make the point very nicely that frequently what you think the disagreement about is not what the disagreement really ends up being about. Um, so you know, being sure that you know what it is we really agree on and disagree on. Okay, now how do you structure an argument? So you talk about conclusion, because, evidence. I love your argument, but let me have it in your words rather than mine. Yeah,
2: of course. So um, I'll give you the logic first um, and then give you the structure that accompanies okay. it. So um, in debate, we say that every argument has to do two things. It has to show that the main claim that it's making is true And that it's important. So imagine if I'm arguing that we should all become vegetarian because it's good for the environment. You have to show that it's in fact good for the environment. Otherwise you have no legs to stand on. And you have to show that the fact that it's good for the environment means we should become vegetarian. So it's, it should change our actions and the, um, structure that debaters use to try and answer those two burdens of proof is called the four Ws. Um, and it encompasses many of the concepts you mentioned. So, and these are four questions that one should answer um, in making an argument. The first question is, what is the point that you're making? Right. And, and just the way you said, Wanda, just as we talk across one another, talk about a million things that A disagreement about the dirty dishes becomes about the whole world, um, so too, we can be just kind of expressing our discontent or talking around our discomfort without actually naming the point that we're making. So what is the point? Why is it true? What are the reasons for that? When has it happened before? Can you give me an example or a case study or um, some evidence that this isn't just an abstract idea, it's actually borne out in practice? And finally, um, who cares, right? So why should the combination of your answers to the three things that I've just mentioned, why should that be enough to change my behavior or to change my mind? So the questions are, what is the argument? Why is it true? When has it happened before? And who cares? And the combination of these four things, um, Gives you a starting place for how you make arguments. It also is the starting place for rebuttal, right? So, um, if the other side has failed to answer any of those questions, can you ask it of them um, uh, and 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 get them to develop their arguments further before you respond? Um, so, the basic currency in debate is the argument, and uh, this is how you create that building block.
1: As I was reading your description in the book of this and your examples, what struck me is I think we're reasonable, well, we're moderately good at saying, here's my point. And I should add, that's a point of view, mm. not just a general theme. I have an opinion about this. And most of us can mount evidence to support that mm. opinion. All right. But I think most people fall f- short on the last one, which is why does that opinion then reinforce the fact that I should become vegetarian? So we missed that second half. It seems obvious, but then it's not quite so obvious.
2: That's very nice. I I haven't heard it in that that formulation before, but I think it's true. And the reason is the last question is not about you. It's about the other person, right? So um, Whether being vegetarian is good for the environment—that's kind of you can do your own research, you can use your own rhetoric and all that. But the who cares part—that's asking the other person to relate to what you're saying. That has to do with what they care about, what they're going to respond to, what their behavior um, stems from. And uh, and so I think it's quite natural that that's where we fall apart. It's in that attempt to understand one another, talk across that gap, um, that we fall short. Right, right.
1: Okay, so four questions. What's the point? And I will say point of view, because it's an yeah. opinion. Why is that true? So give me the facts, give me the evidence, give me when has this happened? So I'll have an example to back it up and support it. And then the last one is who cares? How does the other person relate to what you've said from their perspective, their point of view, their other criteria, their competing demands, and we're right back to empathy, I think, yeah. completely at the end of the day. All right. Bo, this is a great place to take a quick break. So right. we'll stop there. When I come back, I want to talk about how do you refute somebody else's point of view and more importantly, how do you deal with the bad faith debaters, the people who are not exactly playing by the rules we'd like them to play by. My guest today, Bo So. The book we're talking about is Good Arguments, fabulous book, highly recommended. I think there's an awful lot to say from this book about how you be persuasive. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.OutOfTheComfortZone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on OutOfTheComfortZone.com. We hope you'll join us.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: Welcome back. With me today is Bo So. He's a two time world champion debater and a former coach of the Australian national debating team in the Harvard College Debating Union. Having won lots and lots of awards and being a writer in a host of a number of places, Bo has now written what I think is a stunningly good book called Good Arguments. And we have been taking his experience as a debater and understanding why it's important to structure a debate why debate is important in your organization for a team, for psychological safety, for innovation, and what the structure is gonna do in helping you be more persuasive in your arguments. So the general notion of the structure is an understanding first of what it is we are debating about. Is it a fact, is it a should, or is it an action? I changed the language on you Bo, but that's the kind of the general sense of it. And what's the essence of that disagreement? And then to make my argument, I need to answer four questions. What's the point I'm making? My belief, if you will, or my conclusion. Why is that true? Where's the evidence? And when has this happened before? So that's part of the evidence to support my point of view. And then I have to answer the reverse question for the other person. Why should they care? Or why does that evidence support the conclusion that I'm drawn for the other person's point of view, not from mine? So a very interesting, it's the last one I think we fall short on way too many times. Mm. You'll see in that, that this is not about facts. This is about facts and empathy and values. And I just slid that word values in because Mm. I think it is all over the corporate debate about how we do things. All right. I want to flip and talk about how do you refute arguments um, just briefly. So somebody's made a point of view. I disagree with that point of view. What do I go about doing to refute their statement?
2: I think the first step is to start with the two burdens. So um, when we disagree with someone um, and when we're trying to dismantle an argument, those two provide very natural opening points. The first is, do you think what they're saying is true? And if not, you have a kind of truth objection. Or do you think What they've said is just not enough to change someone's mind or your behavior. And then you have an important subjection. So I think the first is to know where you're aiming. And once you have that, you can kind of construct an argument in reverse. So what is the objection you're making? Why is that true? When has that happened before? Who cares about that? Um, That that, um, same structure for the argument, I think, can help. And then the last little dynamic um, that we haven't spoken about yet that is important in rebuttal is, I used to have a high school coach who, um, you know, we thought he was he was very aggressive speaker and he was a big rugby player. You know, was talking about getting hit with the biggest people to get the hardest and so on, and um, and we thought he was you know just kind of a bulldozer really. But one of the things that he taught me, and that made me see what he was doing in a really different way, was he said, "No amount of no is going to get you to a yes." Which is critique itself is not enough to answer the bigger question in the debate, right? So um, imagine where there's a disagreement about um, who who we should be hiring, and the person on the other side ha- has. Objections to every individual candidate, right? Okay. Being able to turn around and say, "Well, what do you what do you think?" So, at the end of all that criticism, what's the positive suggestion? Um, I think flipping the rebuttal right at the end and saying, "So we've seen how that doesn't work, but here's something else, an alternative, um, something that can take the place of the argument that you've just destroyed." I think that's the last step in effective rebuttal. So the first is take your aim. Second is work through developing an actual argument, and then finally supply an alternative.
1: It's an alternative. That's interesting. I like that quote, critique is not enough to get to yes. Yeah. Or I might say to get to action because if all I'm doing is shooting down arguments, we're still left with nothing better to do. So might as well go with the other person's opinion on what to do. I mean, we still have to get there. And so this is why I think you see so often in the corporate world, we talk about pessimism and cynicism as being ineffective Mm
2: -hmm. because,
1: yes, it shoots everything down, but it doesn't tell us what to do next. I think it's why also you tend to see the more optimistic, glass-half-full characters Mm -hmm. end up being more the leaders because they're focused on where we take this forward. Very Mm -hmm. interesting point. So I'm going to refute somebody's argument. First, I'm going to say, where's the... Evident. Where's the problem? Is the problem with the facts, the truth, Mm -hmm. what we think is true and recognize that may be elusive on occasion. And is it not enough to convince me? So what you've said is I don't disagree with, but it isn't sufficient. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is, do I have an alternative Mm -hmm. that is better? Okay. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Those are pretty simple. I like those. Very, very simple. Okay, let's turn to a class you call the Bad Faith Debaters. Um, and you talk about four of those. Um, pick whichever one is your favorite. But how do you deal with people who are – well, first off, what do you mean by bad faith debaters? Let's start there.
2: Yeah, I, um, I struggled with this um, because we we see them – all around us, right? And I think we see them very young, which is in the playground, where um, you know you're making a point that's a, you think is a reasonable point, or you're making a request that you think is reasonable, and then um, and and maybe they you know, um, when I was growing up, it was like your mama jokes, you know, and it's just something kind yeah. of and and it and or it's an ad hominem attack or. Mm-hmm. Um, they deliberately mishear what you're saying and misrepresent mm-hmm. you. And these are bullying tactics that um, I try to get a handle on for the purposes of the book because I've seen it in the workplace. I've seen it in university settings. I've seen it um, on television in, in in among members of Congress, right? So right. it's everywhere. And I, I think what happens, the dynamic is, They change the conversation from a debate or a rational discussion or a civil discussion into something else, something like a spectacle, something like a um, a, a, just a kind of a show where the most outrageous content or the most um, provocative or the most... um, dominant even violent you know where where right. that carries the day right and so um, this set of exercises um, is meant to counteract that and debate like any um, part of the world has those pathologies in it so we need some right. response to it and these are just some of the the tools that debaters have worked out over many generations to deal with that so to talk about one as an example um, the hardest one probably is liars, right? And and there's a conversation to be had about how do we create a society in which truths flourish, but at the end, but that's often not helpful at an individual level when you're faced with someone who's lying to you. So um, the way in which a debater deals with that is to do something called a plug and replace. So one of the, the advantages of a truth over lie is that things tend to kind of line up. Right, and if you think about a teenager lying about being out, um, they, things don't line up. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so the the plug and replace approach is to first take the opposing argument and plug it into what you know to be what else you know to be true about the world, and show the ways in which it's inconsistent. Right, so you say you are um, at your friend Jen's house but what about all this other evidence? So you've shown the ways in which it's inconsistent with what you know about the world. Instead, and then you supply instead what the truth is. So actually what I think has happened is you are out partying um, over there and that fits with all of these other things, right? So you're giving a demonstration of um, why one account is more persuasive or more likely to be true than the other, So that's the plug and replace tactic. And importantly, you can't do that for all the lies that are told. And one of the ways in which liars get ahead is they give you a great supply sea of lies and and you waste all your time trying to respond. So instead you pick a representative lie that gets to this tactic that demonstrates the strategy they're using and you use this technique to demonstrate the falsehood. Um, So that's just an example of of some amount of judgment, but also having a kind of a tactic or um, a skill that you can fall back right, on um, right, to right. respond.
1: All right. So recognizing that there are, I'm going to reframe this a little bit, that there are people all over in all walks of life who succeed by being dominant, being yeah. the loudest, being the most vocal, being the most repetitive, being the mm-hmm. some version of dominant. And you can do that by what you say and the way you say it and the volume you say it, but you can also do it in the ways that you subtly put other people down or the jokes that you make or the comments that undermine somebody's confidence. So there's dozens of ways. And whether we're going to call that intentional or not, I will leave aside, but the reality is those things occur and it has an impact on us. One of those are people just flat out tell a falsehood, and mm-hmm. so plug and play replace is the notion of plugging, assuming for a moment that what they're saying is true, and put it into the sequence of facts that you know to be true, and question, show, point out the inconsistency, and then to supply an alternative interpretation. Now, a pause on that. Richard um, Shell, who's one of my favorite all-time people on persuasion, says that he believes. The best way to change somebody's belief is to point out the inconsistency. Mm-hmm. So it's what you're exactly what you're saying. And it's not like I say you lied and you're inconsistent. I'm just going to pose that question that calls out the doubt about mm. the consistency of your belief. And that's exactly what you're saying here.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'll just point out two two thoughts that um, that you brought up, Wanda, that I think are are, are subtle and and really worth um, worth comment. Is um, one is in terms of that inconsistency, and we were talking about this on the who cares bit.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and you you talked about values, right? Right. One part of that is sense of person mm-hmm. and sense of self. And mm-hmm. one of the things that that inconsistency gets at is, I think we have the idea we the character is a part of it too. our understanding of ourselves and who we want to be. And I think that's one of the reasons why that's an effective thing to do. And I think the second, um, is that, that very, those very subtle forms of undermining people. And another way of thinking about that is subtle ways of discounting what the other person Mm -hmm. is saying. And we can talk about this in There's a a way in which this happens in a gendered way, a racialized way, but even just not listening to a kid because it's a kid or he or she is a kid. And um, those kinds of discounting, I think is never missed by the person who is being discounted. And importantly, um, it points to another part of what we should do in response and to both bullies and more subtle forms of undermining is to come to some agreement about what kind of discussion we're having here, right? And you can say, I'm not interested in a mudslinging match, right? I'm not interested in throwing sand. What I want is a a real discussion. And if we can't have that, I'm not doing this with you, Mm -hmm. right? So to, to try and say at the outset, what kind of debate this is, and to remind people of that, especially when there's an audience and there's this urge to perform reminding both the other side and the audience hey what we're having here is a debate so it's not a playground it's not a cage match um right. it's a it's a right. it's a place to discuss and so coming to that agreement and and creating that weather in the room that that atmosphere in the room um i think can be an important step right right
1: There are so many ways of doing that in the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's imagine there's a team sitting around a table and there are some senior stakeholders at that meeting and there is a debate happening about strategy A or strategy B um, and somebody makes a joke, Mm
2: -hmm. which
1: is they may or may not have the intention of undermining, but its impact on you is Mm -hmm. feeling undermined. Mm -hmm and i think you're right in saying that is never missed mm. from the person who feels undermined even though the rest of the room may well miss it so i think that's important for leaders to understand that's a felt experience intention has nothing to do with it at this point yeah, for and
2: sure then, and uh, go ahead guys, go ahead no no i mean it's a it's a it's a very difficult question what we do in response to that but you're right that um and this is kind of where we started our conversation when some members of the team are silenced or are unable to speak, it's not just their ideas that we miss. What we miss is our opportunity to be in relation to a more full part of who they are, right? And the nature of discussion is you say A, I say B, but we end up at C. So we don't, we don't know what we're missing when we close the door to disagreement in those ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, interesting. I love that missed opportunity to be in a full relationship with the other. And we miss a lot in that a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. All right. So to have the wherewithal, the confidence in yourself, the debate skills in the Mm -hmm. moment to say something like, look, I'm interested in the debate.
2: Mm. How do you and do, I do it? I want to get to the <laughs> substance of the debate.
1: Now, you may, you may, it may be appropriate to say I'm not interested in mudslinging. That depends on the context and the culture and whether you could actually say that. But yep. you say, as what I'm interested in is the substance of the debate.
2: Yep. Yeah. That
1: easily to draw yep. it back to the purpose. And to, um, what that does is shift it off the joke or the comment or the whatever that was made in the moment and drags it back to what's really at stake.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, And you're right. There are some settings where where it's hard to define things in the negative. And in those, I think it helps to define things in the positive. And one way of doing that is to say, um, another way of asking that question is, what are you hoping to get out of this conversation? Mm -hmm. What are we as a team hoping to get out of this meeting? And it may be that there are lots of different ways in which arguments can go right for us for some people, just learning is enough. For other people, this is an important decision. So they want to prevail and have their voice carry the day. It could be we want a deeper relationship out of this. But for me, the minimum that I said in my book is to say a good disagreement is one in which both sides walk away feeling like they would do that again because that's all it takes for the conversation to continue and for us to be able to access some of those benefits um, that disagreement and conversation brings.
1: Excellent point. I have one uh, leader, large organization, very, very senior guy who says um, when he brings a new person on the team, particularly a new person who is of an underrepresented group, the tendency is for people to talk over that person. Mm -hmm. So just jump in on the back before they finish their point and carry with their day. And it's a way in which you feel kind of undermined and silenced in some form. And his tactic as a leader of those team meetings is to let the event happen, pause, turn back to the other, the underrepresented person and say, wait, that was important. Could you say it again? And he says, I only have to do that a couple of times before everybody around the table learns that they're not going to jump in and silence somebody by that sort of behavior. And it's those simple tactics that leaders can do that are going to make a dramatic difference in how the debates happen with their teams.
2: I love that. I love that. And 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 I think one advantage of people in that position, though it's hard to get to it's easy to get some distance from it sometimes as we've all been in that position. I'm a pretty young person of being in those settings, right. Yeah. And, and maintaining a close connection to that and, and um, being able to recognize that and to remind oneself of that, I think is an important part.
1: I think it's noticing it in the first place being, because yeah. it happens, it happens all the time. As you said, we tend to believe that the person who's the dominant is the one that's going to carry the day, and it isn't always the case. All right, there's so much more that we could talk about. Tons, tons more. I'm just going to give you like two minutes to say you have some rules about being persuasive, particularly my favorites, clarity, cut the excess, make it personal, be fluid. What a brilliant... you want to just say a few words about those? Sure.
2: So this has to do with um, after you've kind of figured out what you're going to say, how you say it, right? And debate is about... In, in equal proportion about both of those. And the three quick shorthands for the use of rhetoric, the use of speech and words and gesture for persuasive effect, is the three Ps. One is proportionality. So this is what um, where you started us off. Um, no excess, but also don't undersell the point, right? The way in which you express a point should be proportional to the message itself. The second is personality. And this is, I think, something we often... Shy away from because we think when we tell our own story, it's not professional or it's it's kind of it it makes it too individual, too idiosyncratic, maybe. But often um, we're asking people to do something that's very scary, which is to change their minds, and it helps to be a guide through that. And for that, they need to be able to trust you, and often they need to be able to hear how you came to believe what you believe and how you came to action the the steps that you've been taking, right? So giving a sense of your personal journey and how you got to that position in addition to saying the position. So the second P is personality and the third is panache, which is, um, I don't even know what that word really means, but it's a kind of uh, an opportunity to enjoy the art and the craft of it. To say a well-crafted sentence says um, something about the writer, but it actually says more about the reader. And it says to the reader, you are worthy of this kind of attention. And putting that work into expressing oneself in the way in which one is going to be best heard, I think can be a sign of respect.
1: I would say panache is like executive presence. Mm -hmm. And it's all that I do in my being Mm -hmm. to convey both the passion and the care about the audience. So, I think that's I loved your phrase that it tells the listener, you're worth my doing a good job. Mm. really nice, all right, Bo. we are out of time. So, all my right. guest today is Bo say, world champion debater and multiple different fronts. The book that we've been talking about is the good argument. What I walk away from this conversation is once again, we need better debate in our organizations and on our teams for a host of reasons. Having a better structure around how we do debate, both how I present my ideas and as the leader of a team, how I ask the team to debate. And I think the ideas in this book couldn't be more important than ever. So Bo, thank you.
2: Thank you so much. And and thank you for, for your wonderful reflections, Wanda.
1: I really appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like us on your favorite podcast server and join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone.